Our gospel lesson this morning is from Matthew. We are in the 17th chapter, beginning at the first verse. Jesus has been with his disciples doing ministry. He has decided to go to Jerusalem and to the seat of political power and to confront the injustice of poverty and exclusion at the seat of power. He is not naive. He has been with his disciples and told them that he will die and that he will rise again. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. While Peter was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. We come this day, O God, that we may be changed. That through this time of worship, we may experience your presence in our lives. And so, be healed. In heart or mind, body or spirit, come to us. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. One day in the mail, I received this brown padded envelope. It was from a very good friend of mine, a Christian educator from whom I had worked for years. And inside this brown envelope, there was wrapped up in more bubble wrap, a cardboard box. And inside the cardboard box was Jesus. He stood about six inches tall. He was molded out of cream-colored plastic. And there was a little light with him and an on-off switch. It was 
a Jesus nightlight. Now, my friend sent this to me, I'm sure, hoping that I would laugh and laugh and laugh. She knew that I had a penchant for things like Virgin Mary plant holders. And I did laugh and laugh, but I also suspected that she might know that I would plug it in. We all need a lamp to shine in the darkness until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. Now, we could take this story of the transfiguration and pull it to pieces. We could as good biblical scholars, as well-trained Presbyterians, we could see all of the motifs from the Old Testament that Matthew has drawn together to create this story. We know that Moses took with him his inner circle of elders. There were 70, it was a lot, and they went up Mount Sinai and Moses entered the cloud, that shining cloud, and received the law and had this amazing experience so that when he came down, his face shone like the sun so that people could not even bear to look at him. We can see where Matthew is getting his material. And Elijah also had that experience on the mountain with God. And the earthquake, and the wind, and the fire, and that still small voice, the prophets. We have Matthew putting together the law and the prophets right up there on the mountaintop, that archetypal place where heaven and earth meet. It's all there. Jesus' baptism. This is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The same words. Matthew has just been cutting and pasting from all over the Bible. And we could read this passage that way, and we can delight in Matthew's brilliant composition. It adds meaning to know these things. But we miss the power if we think that that is all it is. Because something happened on that mountain that was more than a collage of biblical motifs. God was present, and it changed things. Jesus was in a dark place. He made that decision to go to Jerusalem. He was not naive. He knew what he would face. He suspected or knew that he would be killed. And before he begins this journey towards Jerusalem, he goes to pray. As any of us, when we find ourselves in those dark places where we're wondering 
is this where you want me to be, God? We go to pray. Jesus took with him his disciples because they were in it with him. And they didn't know, but they too needed to pray. And it changed things. Jesus was confirmed in his mission. Right up there on the mountaintop, it was as if God said, yes. Yes. And God gave Jesus some kind of encounter that Jesus could see all of history. He could see back to Moses and Elijah and forward beyond his death. He had that mountaintop perspective. And we can imagine that it gave Jesus courage and conviction that he would need as he faced the cross. And Peter and James and John, asleep, as always, yet they did see it. They saw the vision. They got some gift. They did not understand its meaning. They were frightened out of their minds as what happens often when we are in the presence of the divine. They fell on their faces as it is proper to do in the presence of God. I think it prepared them for the resurrection having seen this moment of encounter. Peter was one of the ones who was first at the tomb after the women. Peter and James and John were certainly leaders in the early church. People wrote letters in their names. Think about your epistles. There is a letter of James. There are two letters of Peter. And there are three letters of John. There was a true experience of the divine encountered upon the mountain that is beyond what we can know, beyond what we can figure out with our head. Matthew had to find some way of communicating what cannot always be put into words. Now, these experiences are gifts, and we have them. We don't always trust them. We don't always believe that they are real because most of us grew up in the age of religion as belief. We grew up in the age as religion of belief. And when we were taught what it meant to have faith, it meant that you knew the Lord's Prayer that you knew the story of David and Goliath and Noah's Ark, that you could recite the Apostles' Creed, and that you could say the 23rd Psalm. That's what it meant to have faith, that you believed certain things about God and about Jesus. And there have been big debates about who is a true believer and who is not a true believer because of what we say we believe and what we say we can't believe. And there's a whole big thing about belief. And belief is important. But somewhere in there, we lost not the what about God and what we believe about God, 
We lost the how do we believe about God? Or how do we believe in God? How is it that we come to these beliefs? How do we experience God? People have the right to ask us, how do you believe that? How do you believe that God loves you? How do you know God's grace in your life? How do those beliefs make a difference to who you are and your life in the world? We need to be able to answer the questions of how. Faith as experience. Faith as an encounter of God's presence. Faith that is practice beyond the head, but in the heart and with the hands and in parts of our mind that go beyond intellectual understanding. How? About a hundred years ago, a man named William James gave a series of lectures at Harvard called The Varieties of Religious Experience. And he took seriously those moments of the numinous divine that come and we are somehow changed. He writes and he tells of all these little stories and one is that this one, sometimes they come out of the blue, and this is one of the little moments. The person writes, One brilliant morning, morning, I went up into the hills. In the loveliness of the morning, in the beauty of the hills and valleys, suddenly, without warning, I felt that I was in heaven, an inward state of peace and joy and assurance incredibly intense. I was aware that I was immersed in the infinite ocean of God. What a gift. I don't know if we've had that intense of a moment of an encounter with God, but I do know that we have them. It might be that calm that comes in a worship service. I often experience the energy and presence of God when I pray for people. I have had people come and kind of whisper to me their experiences of there just being a presence in the room. when they were lonely or their father died. These moments come and they come as gifts. Sometimes they just are there. But most of the time we ask for them. God gives gifts sometimes just because we ask. 
It is this transformative process that the church is so good at. We have 2,000 years of history of practicing this transformative process of ritual change. And so we can learn from the church about this step-by-step process of putting ourselves in the place where we can receive these gifts. The first, like Jesus and the disciples, and we have to go away. Find some place apart from our everyday lives. It might be a tree in the backyard. It might be the garden. Sometimes if people live near the beach, they go to the beach. But we also come to church, that very different place, to set ourselves apart for a time to be with God. The church is to be a vessel of the presence of God. And when we are in that place, we pray in silence, in word, in song. We perform rituals. We eat. We drink. We expect that God is with us. And in that process of doing these rituals, of listening and singing and bathing a baby, God is with us. It is good to have some spiritual heroes. Jesus had Moses and Elijah. Who are your Moses and Elijah? It is good to have them and to know all about them. Could be a saint. One of mine is Bishop Tutu. Talk to them. Bring them with you. Know they are there. It is good to have somebody to tell. Even if they fall asleep on you or don't understand it or say the wrong thing. Like Jesus, friends, it is still good to be able to have a few people to share what you have known. I think we tend to whisper about these things because we were raised and brought up in an age of belief. The head belief. And we're still somehow catching up with the spirit belief. That experiencing God's spirit in real ways. I think this story went over like a lead balloon at the first service, so I'm hesitant to tell it to you now. But I want to tell you about one of those times when I had a very powerful spiritual experience. When I was 21, I spent the summer as a volunteer in mission in a small Presbyterian church in Hell's Kitchen. And this was back in the 80s when Hell's Kitchen was hell. And I was to help a little day camp for poor children from the projects. And during the time that I was there, I dealt with issues of poverty, drug dealing, AIDS, armed robbery, and sexual misconduct, and a few more. It was terrible. It was horrible. 
And one Sunday, at the very end, we had worship and we had communion. And in that worship, I had this vision of all of the people in that room being connected and being one with each other. But in Jesus Christ, in some strange way, it was all okay. Not in the sense that it was right or there weren't problems, but there was this profound peace And I thank God for the gift. If there's a last thing that I can say about such transformative, transcendent moments of grace, is claim them. Claim them. The sparkle on the water the hue of the yellow daffodil, or dare I say, the glint of the icicles on the trees. Claim, claim your experience of the divine and know the presence of God and let it be to you as a lamp shining in dark places and to keep until the morning dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Amen. <laughs>